Welcome to Kibi on Liberty. Robbie, how's it going? I'm doing great. Good to see you. Yeah. Um, so it's you, you have been on the front lines of this entire conversation about tech censorship and government agencies badgering platforms. Specifically, I guess Facebook is something that you focused on. Um, but there's so much going on now, and, and it gets to the heart of this libertarian debate that's going on. Um, or limited government conservatives, all these guys, what do we do about big tech censorship? And and I think a lot of people sort of lead with their emotions instead of what they know about, about letting government into these sorts of things. So I wanted to dig into all that. But let's start with uh, the news of, of this week, which is, is really about, you know, what do we do about TikTok? China, is it, is it, a nominally private company that is in effect financed or controlled by the CCP, is that what TikTok is? It's not so much the financing, it's just that as a Chinese company, uh, it operates under different rules and at the end of the day can be beholden to the CCP in terms of the content that appears on the platform. Now you can find, if you go on TikTok, you can find criticism of the Chinese government, you can find videos about Tiananmen Square and all that, it's just they might take it down mm-hmm. because the Chinese government wants them to. They might uh, minimize. They could minimize. And I, I think there's some evidence they did in early COVID days. They didn't want you speculating about it, that sort of thing. And then there's also the question of uh, the government, the Chinese government's access to data collected um, through TikTok because we don't have, you know, it doesn't have to operate under the same kind of American rules. So I appreciate all these criticisms of TikTok. And then I think there are, a little bit, there's some off-the-wall criticisms, the whole, you know, social media is harming kids. That's a bigger conversation. Um, I, I don't see any evidence that TikTok is any worse an offender than other platforms. And I think some of the evidence on the whole on that front has been overstated in terms of moral panic. Not to say there's nothing yeah. there, but... It seems like the Chinese model, it's 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 not really communism or socialism in any technical meaning of the term. But when you dig into the social credit system, you discover mm-hmm. that that all of those those tools that they use, the, the banking system and the monitoring of, of the lives of, of Chinese citizens, this is, this is at least nominally implemented by, by private corporations mm-hmm. that are controlled by the government. So that, you know, that's, that's probably closer to what we call fascism in the technical sense, but yeah. it's, I suspect, not knowing TikTok sounds like the same thing, but lots of government control but nominally not a government entity. Right. And people who are critical of TikTok will point out that in China, the version of TikTok that's available in China is nothing like the version available here. It's um, it's children's ability to use it, young people's ability to use it is greatly restricted. It's a lot of content on being a good citizen, that sort of thing. But that makes me turn around and go, well, yeah, they're doing that because they're tyrannical. They don't right. have a free country. They don't have the First Amendment. They don't have a, a culture of freedom of speech. As you know, as a red-blooded American it is, it patriot, is, I do, yeah. I wouldn't want to bring that regime into America. We, you know, I would leave these kinds of decisions to parents and families and communities, um, rather than what they're trying to do now is ban the app outright. Which that's one thing, and then the authority to do that because the government needs to claim for itself this new authority is very scary, and I think could be used easily weaponized in a Patriot Act style. Uh, and I'm not the only one saying this. Senator Rand Paul had a great op-ed about this this week. Tucker Carlson actually is sounding the alarm on this as well. Uh, People understand how this will be weaponized against our speech, which, by the way, as you alluded to in your opening remarks, is already happening. And, you know, for all the concerns about China, uh, Chinese government-based censorship on TikTok, I hate to break it to you. The same kind of influence in terms of content The American government has been doing that to Twitter, to Facebook, to Google, YouTube, etc. I've seen the emails. They've been revealed, you know, and part of the great reporting people like Matt Taibbi have done. It's pervasive and terrifying. Yeah. Is is there a way like because and I want to talk about this, this horrific uh, Restrict Act, which is basically Mm -hmm. the Patriot Act on steroids, but targeting the speech and thinking of American citizens. Um, but is there a simpler way to 
like, can the government just target a company and say, you're not allowed here? I don't even know the answer to that. I, well, sus- I suspect it's semi-unconstitutional, yes. but that in no way stops them from doing it anyway. Exactly that. No, there is, I don't think any, th- you know, people like Justin Amash will, will raise this issue all the time that laws should not target specific companies. They should, there should be regulations that all companies have to abide by, but a targeted takedown of TikTok would, I think, certainly be unconstitutional. They're trying to come up with the authority for doing it. You know, they'll say that, like, it's akin to a a foreign media property operating within the U.S. Um, I mean, look at all the actions that were taken against Russia today, for example, as a result of the Russia-Ukraine war. I think this is, again, a, a dangerous territory to go down. And I just, I don't see the evidence that the censorship on TikTok, while very bad, is worse than what is happening on the American-owned platforms at the government's behest. And I'm not, you know, I'm not someone who's going to say that, like, oh, we're just as bad as China. So I, I don't believe that. The Chinese government is authoritarian. It d- d- it doesn't give its people political rights. We're, we're just um, aspiring to be as bad as Yes, them. yes. And we shouldn't want to go down that path. And that's exactly what we're going down with this Restrict Act. And unfortunately, it's a path we've already been going down during the pandemic as a result of the 2016 election, as a result of the 2020 election. So uh, the Republicans, I, I did a quick search on the co-sponsors of the Restrict Act, and I won't get them all, but I noticed some of my favorite measures as to whether or not I categorically hate something, even though I haven't even tried to understand it, is I see Mitt Romney and Lindsey Graham <laughs> yeah. as, as core co-sponsors of this. And, and it, um, you know, it, what, what, what we were just talking about, like, um, they can't just ban TikTok, and that probably doesn't stand up to constitutional scrutiny. So instead, they're going to give the, the state the power to target everything. And it seems to be incredibly sweeping, as you said. Rand Paul has, has talked about this. Tucker Carlson has talked about it. Um, interesting coalition. I watched your show. We should give a, a shout out to to the Rising. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's you and someone that comes from Brandre the left. Andre Gray, very much a, a Bernie uh, Sanders kind of leftist populist voice. Uh, so we quarrel all the time. We disagree on a lot of economic issues, labor issues, but the left has faced censorship as well at the hands of state and and kind of they face the contempt of the mainstream media is also something I would say that we have in common with them. So on a lot of tech social media speech issues we're really uh, we're we're aligned and also it's helpful to make because I don't I don't want this to be a partisan persecution issue solely because it's really about what the government has done is try to chill dissent on all sorts of topics from all sorts of directions. Yeah. There's a kind of, there's a mainstream, you know, liberal, progressive kind of ideology of the state and of many media corporations that libertarians, right populists, left populists don't fit neatly into and are often uh, maligned by. That coalition, and, and you pointed it out on the show that AOC and some of her yeah. squad AOC, colleagues... AOC, Rand Paul, Tucker Carlson all agreeing on something. Yeah. It sounds wild, but... They have anti-authoritarian impulses on a lot of issues that they can recognize. You know, they would recognize the war on terror going yeah. wrong was something that maybe your Mitt Romney's, your type of people signing off on this legislation, haven't learned that lesson. It used to be that used to be more normal. By the mm-hmm. way, you'd get that like Thomas Massey would work with yeah. certain people um, that that I guess we have to categorize on the far left. Rand Paul would do it. Um, I remember Mike Lee and Bernie Sanders doing a great hearing on AUMF. Mm-hmm. Um, and and since Trump, a lot of those coalitions have sort of fallen apart. So it's kind of nice to see um, that the, the left speaking up on this stuff. Because in the old days, three or four years ago, you would expect the left to be leading, help at least co-leading the charge, protecting civil liberties, and particularly when it comes to to how what we're allowed to think and what we're allowed to say in the public square, but that seems to have evaporated quite a bit during during lockdowns and COVID. My perception uh, now, learning about the left from my co-host and from some of the guests we have on my show, Rising, which is for the publication The Hill, um, and I also work at Reason Magazine where I do work on libertarian uh, subjects. I- I've learned that you know the left had a real moment. And they've faced some of the kind of, um, in, bat, you know, internal infighting that, you know, that frustratingly has set back the libertarian movement at times as well, uh, or the conservative movement. They faced a lot of that. And um, 
and yeah, they 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 fell to some infighting. And COVID was, I, I think there are people on the left who went either way on COVID. There are still some people on the left who I disagree with a lot, but on COVID stuff, they they appreciate the opportunity for greater authoritarianism that COVID provided. And then I think there are others in that direction who very afraid of COVID kind of defaulted to it. Well, I guess we have to obey the public health uh, consensus that kind of, I think it divided them a little bit. At Kibbe on Liberty, freedom is a lifestyle 24 seven, something you live and breathe and wear every day. If that describes you, you need the very best Liberty swag in the market today. Just like this shirt I happen to be wearing. Go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and check out our exciting merch. You too can love Liberty and look cool. Yeah, and and maybe us as well. Yeah, and us as well. Yeah, yeah. We're, I'm, which I'm not putting them down saying they're divided. There's all sorts of divisions I deal with. I'm sure you do as well on a daily basis. Well, I, like I, this, I, won't, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but I've, I've been surprised at... Um, at libertarians that were willing to accept um, uh, lockdowns and insanely high levels of authoritarianism mm-hmm. um, because our instincts should have told us that that was the wrong way to go kind of kind of regardless of the of the threat because I, I just don't think that centralized solutions work absolutely ever, ever. And yeah they, it was uh, I, I mean it was one of the largest opportunities for the state in our lifetime to um, seize more control at every level. Um, I'm glad now that there is a lot more uh, people speaking up everywhere and saying, wait, well, the things you told us a year, two years ago, three years ago, don't even, even setting aside the principle, which we shouldn't, but even setting aside the principle, the things you said don't make any sense and haven't held up. I hope people have learned that lesson to be, you know, more militant. Because that's, I mean, that's how it went in 2001 and 2004, right? How could you be opposed to to this military intervention, you know, you're siding with the, it'd be so crazy. All the experts, all the national security people say we have to do this and the evidence is so compelling. How did that turn out? And of course, the, the Patriot Act was a grab bag of things that they had tried to pass before. Yes. And they saw the opportunity to do that when everybody was freaked out and scared. And I feel like bringing this full circle to efforts to censor um, speech online, this is a set of tools that, that the surveillance state has wanted forever. And they're doing it, they have been doing it, um, but this sort of formalizes that. And, and it's, it's fascinating to me that, that they're so blatant about it now. But I wanna be white-pilled for a second, and then I wanna, get in, <laughs> I wanna get into all these things that will convince us that the world is going to end and we'll never get to speak freely again. But my take on the, the story that you revealed about the CDC dictating the terms of conversation about COVID to Facebook and the Twitter files more broadly have unveiled this massive surveillance state where they're, they're, they're reading our freaking Twitter post, right? And even like, they don't even like our jokes, apparently, and they don't like us expressing opinions about anything. The fact that they've gone this far tells me that they're really freaked out about the democratized nature of speech through social media. So for all of the censorship that we all talk about, it strikes me that in, in a metaphysical sense, the good guys are winning because people have more voice, people have alternative sources of information, and the government that wants to tell us what to think and what to do is so freaked out about it, they did this massive clandestine censorship thing that um, we don't even know half of it yet, but I just hope that's unconstitutional. I don't know. We should definitely appreciate that, as we bemoan censorship, we should definitely appreciate that our ability, our opportunities to speak, our platforms have increased uh, so remarkably over the course of our lifetimes. The conversation taking place everywhere is more freewheeling and fun. It's less restricted. It's less. There's less gatekeeping than ever before in human history. What we're doing right now would have been it would have been difficult ten years ago. It would have been impossible twenty years ago. Yeah. You couldn't. It was hard to speak in forums that did not were not expressly permitted by the institutional gatekeepers, the government and and the the few media companies at the national level. You know, it was TV, a couple newspapers, etc. There were whole eras 
where everyone was on the same page because it was only Walter Cronkite or some other person. And actually, people have a lot of fondness for that era that I think is totally misplaced. Yeah. You can manufacture consensus that way. You can have everyone agreeing to things that are wrong that way. Now, the fact that we don't agree is evident. And, and, and it can be bitter. It can be acrimonious. It can be in your face. It can be unpleasant. People can say things. They can believe things that are wrong. They can try to convince other people of things that are wrong. But, you know, I believe in the free market of ideas. I think this is better. I think it's healthier for us. I, I, I so, I'm so glad that social media has ended the guardrails. And so, so when, when I complain about the rules or what they've been forced to do, I am not complaining about them from the standpoint of, oh, we need to get rid of social media or either break them up or change their liability so they can't operate. Those are, those are suicidal ideas, honestly, from the standpoint of advancing alternative perspectives, and we should just stop with them. So part of realizing that, but, but I, I, that was intention a little bit, you know, maybe a, a year or two ago, when I'm seeing all the censorship, and I'm seeing these companies make moderation decisions that really hurt us. And you have your kind of national conservatives saying, well, this shows that we need a, a firm hand to regulate them. But now we've learned that that was wrong. Not t it's substantially wrong because people in government have been pushing social media companies to make those decisions in like upwards of 90% of the cases. And that you're, you're right that the curtain has been lifted on that it is more pervasive than i would have guessed much more pervasive than i would have guessed i knew that law enforcement had some contact with social media companies i would not have guessed that the fbi fbi agents were spending all their time flagging joke tweets for moderation i would not have guessed that the cdc would be having daily conversations about what content they think on facebook is harmful or could cause vaccine hesitancy um i didn't know that there were entire think tanks, NGOs that are state department funded, who are uh, putting together reports for advertisers about which websites, you know, if they're a real patriot, they won't work with them. Yeah. All of that is happening. It is on an unprecedented and terrifying level. But our fight should be with the government, the government funding, these specific agencies, not with the tech companies themselves are the last link in this chain. And we, you can be mad, you can be frustrated with them, but direct your ire in a productive direction, and that is at big government. So, so I, I agree with that half, but but let me see if I can build out sort of a public choice argument about incentives with government wanting to censor um, free thought and particularly dissonant opinions about everything from lockdowns to to um, Ukraine. Um, I guess is the is mm -hmm. the latest thing, but. I also think there's probably natural incentives that platform the bad actors in Twitter. So I'm more, I'm more familiar with Twitter because I, I read a lot of the Twitter files. And it seemed like there were plenty of people saying, well, that's not what our rules say. And that's not a free speech thing. And those guys shouldn't be telling us what to do. But the people that dominated were the people that were like, hell yeah, let's do that and more. Um, my theory, which is, is somewhat half-baked still, is that there is so much revenue, ad revenue, that comes into these companies um, from, from government, government agencies and their partners. Um, because when I go on, not Twitter so much anymore, but when I go on social media, I see ads from the CDC. I see ads from Pfizer. And I see ads primarily from um, uh, producers of weapons of mass destruction, mm -hmm. lots of government contractors. Are, are spending all this. So I wonder if when they come in and censor, and, and, and you've documented the threats, right? Like this, we're, we're actually going to hurt you if you don't ultimately do what we ask you to do. But do they even have to do that because so much of the money that's propping up these social media companies, the ad spend, is probably coming from this same ecosystem? I don't know that that's the case. I don't know that the threats from the advertisers is the substantial motivation because there's a lot of potential advertisers out there. It, I'm not saying it doesn't motivate their decisions, but my my experience in media companies generally is that the influence of adver advertisers is overstated and the influence of the audience itself is, uh, is understated. Um, I think that's true of media companies in general. With Twitter and the Twitter files and the pressure, I mean, it, it wasn't it wasn't just that like employees were complaining they wanted to do this. I mean, some of their their general counsel was a high-ranking FBI agent. 
I mean, yeah. not at the time he was working for Twitter, but he, he went from the FBI to Twitter. I don't think you ever leave, by the way. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. Yeah. So he's operating with institutional pro- uh, protection yeah. for national security. And the way that the FBI and other agencies would threaten the companies, because it has to be First Amendment compliant, they know that, they're smart, they know they can't tell Twitter or Facebook, you have to do this. What they'll say is, well, these are all our concerns about all these accounts that are Russian, these are Russian propagandists, these are Russian accounts, these are bots, these are fake people, your platform is compromised by foreign agents. Um, that, that foreign hook, by the way, is why I'm so alarmed by this Restrict Act that would ban TikTok. It's all about foreign threats. Well, the government has taken the position that our American companies are infiltrated by foreign disinformation networks, which is not true. It's substantially false, but they have taken that position. And then the main thing is that the mainstream media backed them up. That was ultimately the punishment, the, the stick of the carrot and the stick was, well, if you don't do anything about this, this is coming from the FBI. You know, what are we supposed to say when, when the New York Times asked, uh, asked us experts about national security if Twitter is a safe place, if it's taking the threat to democracy seriously. And that, so that's a sort of advertising adjacent because ultimately the social media company is alarmed that its shareholders will be mad, its, its, its price will go down because the mainstream media is bashing them and saying that they're, they're Russian propagandist organizations for not taking stronger action against speech. So that was, that was the main way the punishment was exacted. And then also hearings. They'll say, and also there's a, you know, a hearing on Capitol Hill next week where we're going to be exploring, you know, some Democratic majority is going to be exploring the threats to democracy and integrity and, and social media. And we're, we're going to have this report on how you've done a really bad job of this unless you're going to, you know, unless here's some accounts you could take action on. Yeah. That's what happened. And, that, and it's terrible. Thank you for joining me today on Kibbe on Liberty and for being part of our fiercely independent audience. Every week, my organization, Free the People, partners with Blaze TV to bring you this show. My guests bring smart perspectives on everything from current events to timeless philosophical debates. If you like what you hear, go to freethepeople.org slash KOL and support Kibbe on Liberty so we can continue to produce these honest conversations with interesting people. Now, let's get back to it. Well, I, I wonder why it started. And I, 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 th- I think everything you're saying is true, but I think the incentives aligned be- because of, of financial interest as well. And and in a, I specifically, a, these are hard numbers to find, and I feel like it should be easy to find out how much does the federal government spend on social media advertising every year? And I couldn't find that, hmm. but even though that should be readily available and, and maybe someone smarter than me can find it. But I did find one article in Roll Call that, that and this is during the Trump administration, that uh, 250 to 300 million was pulled from the CDC's vaccine budget, whatever that was, for social media advertising. Um, so they, you know, they're promoting not just their um, their health mm-hmm. guidance, but that's that's three hundred million. It's like real money. Um, that has to have some influence on it as well. I I I I've never heard anyone say this, but I, I would love to um, write legislation to ban the government spending money to convince me with my own tax dollars <laughs> what I don't believe. Well, and you want to talk about solutions? That's ultimately what I want to do. Is not regulate how the the social media companies respond to this kind of thing because that is very thorny it potentially violates some of our principles and kind of in a very obvious way violates the first amendment if we're trying to tell them what to do the whole problem is them being told what to do we can constrain government actors from talking to them Uh, i would like to have more checks on you know maybe the fbi agent who's flagging jokes all day doesn't need to have that job maybe the CDC official, um, you know, who's doing weekly conference calls on, well, here's what we're seeing and here's what we're worried about. And we think this could cause vaccine skepticism or, hey, there's this viral post about Dr. Fauci, you know, calling out his hypocrisy or his changing his mind about masks or something else. And yeah, we're really worried about that. Is that going to get turned down or what's up with that? Yeah. That kind of thing has to end and and was, I think, represented, re- represents the main free speech issue we faced. I still remember on the NIH website when I was doing research on this a year and a half, two years ago, um, Fauci has a whole media page, or at least he did, and there was clearly a substantial amount of government money used to propagandize their opinions about things. And And I just I just think the whole idea of, of the government taking taxpayer dollars to, to re-educate us, um, I, I could... 
I could just cut that part of the budget and think of think the, think of the savings on interest alone. I said uh, on today on my show about I can't even remember what I said this about I, I, some public program. I said it's one of the worst ways I can think of for the government to spend money. Nice stop. No, it isn't. I, there are a hundred others I can also just as bad or worse. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. The um, but but going going back to to TikTok and China, like the the thing that I've struggled to understand, and I've, I'm just starting to pay attention to this issue thanks to the reporting that you and others have done. Um, you know, the, the very definition of, of enemies of the United States, that, that's an empty vessel. Like, that could be anybody. Who's, who's our enemy? Right. Um, yeah, that, we're not, I mean, we haven't declared war on China. Yeah. We haven't even declared war on Russia. <laughs> we're fighting a kind we have, of Yeah, we haven't declared them, war. I don't, I'm not sure we have any declared wars right now, as no. I recall. The so, global the global war on terrorism wherever yeah. and whenever it occurs. So like um, China is obviously the enemy that they're talking about in this particular case, but we are simultaneously have been financing um, very dangerous gain of function research in China. We can't get the data from China about what actually happened there, and I'm thinking to myself, if China is the enemy, why why did you ever do that? It, <laughs> It doesn't. It doesn't make. Yeah. Any, like that's that's another rabbit hole that I could spend too much time on. But I'm wondering. Like it. It just means that the enemy is whatever they say it is at the moment they say it. So it'll be weaponized against whoever is saying something they don't like. Yeah. Americans they don't like. On social media, we saw this so clearly with the Russia Gate aspect of this. The the mainstream media. I, I blame them a lot. They're so complicit in this. After Trump's win in 2016, the mainstream media seized upon the idea that the reason this happened, something they didn't predict and didn't think was possible, was because of Russian influence on social media, because Facebook in particular, Mark Zuckerberg, remember when he, remember when he became the Democrats' greatest enemy ever, yeah. like overnight? Because they decided that he had not um, taken down enough content from deliberate bad actors in Russia, Russian agents who were setting up bot accounts and were targeting swing voters with misinformation or or trying to make them have a bad opinion of Hillary. That was why Trump won. That is not true. It is. It has been debunked so many times, not just by right wing people or libertarian, but it's by laughably mainstream yeah. people, yeah. political scientists who have studied this, tech experts. You know, believe the experts say. This campaign was not nearly as pervasive as you made it out to be. It did not correctly target swing voters. Like a tiny minority of social media users actually saw the accounts in question. Cambridge Analytica is the most misrepresented scandal of all time. This was, you know, data that supposedly this British company had that was none of that is true. They were overstating. You know, people in the tech sector often overstate the what they've been able to accomplish in order to like attract investors and get yeah. glorious profiles. Look at how we, we hacked the human brain. Now we can, you know, like this is, this has been being debunked since the 1960s, right? Since the Mad Men era, when they thought subliminal messages, you know, that was the end of individual control because of advertising. None of that was true. It's that all over again. So the idea, and, and by the way, for the 2016 election, we're talking about, it was blue collar, older voters in, a couple thousand of them in Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania. Um, they listen to a lot of talk radio. They watch a lot of cable news. Those those platforms for speech are far more uh, biased, and where you're going to get, depending on what you're listening to, you're going to get you know like relentless pro Trump or relentless anti Trump, depending on what you're listening to. Social media is not like that. Social media, you will see other opinions, even if you really just want to see the opinion that confirms what you're saying. It is far more diverse. Than, than TV, radio, newspaper, all those other things. So the idea that like Facebook was uniquely influential here, it, it makes no sense. And what the Russians spent dwarfed what the candidates spent on their campaigns. It wasn't even close. So it was such a stupid idea, but because it has this foreign interference element to it, um, the, the mainstream media and national security states uh, buy-in for that idea has resulted in so many bad speech policies. And the same thing would happen with this TikTok um, Restrict Act. If you've made it this far into the show, it means I must be doing something right. Kibbe on Liberty is just one of the amazing products we created for the people. We tell emotionally compelling stories and produce educational videos for the Liberty Curious. Our award-winning documentaries personalize all things Liberty, independence, 
creativity, hard work, integrity, and perseverance. After the show, check out our work at freethepeople.org. And if you like what you see, donate to support what we do. That's freethepeople.org. Now back to the show. So what, what, is, what is the viability of this idea? It, it seems to have legs, and the Biden administration has endorsed it, um, a disturbing number of Senate Republicans. Kevin McCarthy says he wants to do something. This, this looks really dangerous. Yeah, my, uh, the position I usually take on these things is like, if Biden, Elizabeth Warren, those kind of people think this Republican idea is a good idea, then probably it's a bad idea, right? They, they tend to endorse things like they want more power for democratic progressive ideas. Yeah. So if they agree with your idea to change Section 230, which is this law to govern the internet or to break up these companies, if they think that's a good idea, they probably think that the outcome would be it would hurt conservative speech. And in fact, I think that is the would be the outcome of a lot of these things. Uh, so it's it's like, why are they on your side? I, I know some people love bipartisanship. They think, well, if all these Republicans and all these Democrats agree, it must be a good idea. I'm like, no, 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 no. The opposite is true. It's right? probably an yeah. idea that further entrenches government bureaucracies and grows their power. This this what mystifies me about um, so-called national conservatives who have fully embraced the idea that we're going to use the power of the state to impose their values instead of the other guy's values. And and um, I'm like, do you, do you really think Elizabeth Warren is going to do that? And and I, and part of it is this fantasy that that somehow they have permanent control of the levers of power. It's it's such a it's it's such a dumb way of thinking. It's hard to take that seriously, but that's that's where they're coming from. They take it. It is hard. I find it hard to take seriously. They take it very seriously. I mean, it's it's this idea was discredited at like the Council of Elrond, when Boromir says, no, the ring is a gift, we must use it. And then everyone explains why that's a really dumb idea and it, it just has to be destroyed. Uh, it's similar to that. And I always try to explain to national conservative people that like, even if you can win once and you get in some good people, it will trend toward Elizabeth Warren. Elizabeth Warren, I'm not just like scapegoating her here. She mm -hmm. is the manifestation of the state. The state, the people who man the bureaucracies, the people who are on the commissions to decide what acceptable speech is and acceptable regulation and what's fair competition, all those other things, they are Elizabeth Warrens. They are people who share her progressive ideology. At the end of the day, as mad as you are at, you know, Facebook for taking down a pro-life account or something, the people at the end of the day who will be enforcing the rules will not care. You can't make them. They're not, we'll never staff these bureaucracies with the right people. It's just, it, it cannot work. It's so obvious that it can't work. Um, Getting shrinking these bureaucracies, uh, constraining the rules that they have, the tools that they have, that seems actually easier to me. I know I'm not saying it's easy. It's very hard to stop the government from growing. It's very hard to do that. I'm not saying we've been tremendously successful, but it seems easy compared to permanently winning and installing all the right people and ma then making sure the non-political people under them always have the right ideas and <sighs> we'll be at this forever. I don't know. <laughs> And it's and I guess the good news is that some of some of the Republicans that I would they would say sort of trend towards that populist uh, national conservatism stuff are reacting against this, and it's the neocons mm -hmm. um, who are the ones who are like, yeah, let's do this. Mitt Romney obviously thinks this is a great idea because you can't actually have all the wars that he wants to have if people are allowed to publicly criticize them. But I, I, the, the whole yeah. thing is confusing to me. Look, I, obviously national uh, conservatives are somewhat, they're very anti-neocon. So, like, I appreciate some of their foreign policy ideas aligning with my own. Um, you know, I'm glad with, I, I'm glad that there are uh, Republican members who I don't agree with on a lot of stuff, but are are fighting, you know, Kevin McCarthy to, to scrutinize Ukraine spending or, like, how many more checks are we going to write? Is there any plan to compel these sides to negotiate? You know, Biden says we're going to support them no matter what, no matter what they do till the end of time. Uh, I don't think the American people even feel that way about it. So I, I, I'm not like – I want to work with people when I agree with them. That's true of people on the left. That's true of people on, on the more populist right. But I don't like the direction the right has taken except on foreign policy. On foreign policy, there has been a healthy corrective that Trump – somewhat clumsily 
encapsulated at times, although it was a very insincere commitment and he surrounded himself with a lot of the same people who did a lot of the same things as you know, as you well know. So I appreciate that the neocons have lost on foreign policy, but on a lot of other, and, and foreign policy is very important, don't get me wrong. It's like the thing where the president is least constrained to do whatever he wants. And the temptation to do what the blob wants must be very seductive because everyone from, I mean, Barack Obama vowed to end these wars. He, you know, engaged in drone warfare. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. It, it seems very difficult to overcome because people who even ran explicitly on overcoming it were instead subsumed by it. So I appreciate the foreign policy changes in the Republican Party. I think on a lot of other stuff, um, it's it's taking bad direction. Even on some of the culture stuff where I, I support uh, free speech and, you know, fighting wokeness when it comes to really dumb speech restrictions and you know some of the excesses of the left i want to fight kind of in the realm of ideas but they even that stuff they kind of overdo in a in a way that would lends itself toward just having big government i like are we we're, we're gonna fight over like porn and drag shows and all like i don't want to fight the battle over like what the curriculum should even be in the public school i want to give go to the school that aligns with your values and your family's values and there should be choice rather than we have to win the battle of who's writing the curriculum always and every time, and then everyone will do that. It's not the approach I want to take, and it's yeah. the direction on the right. Well, it's there's um, – so, so I, I draw a bright dividing line when it comes to, to, to drag shows and curriculum. If, if it's a government entity doing it, I'm all for banning it, mm-hmm. or I'm all for parents demanding that they ban it, and it's it's usually done by state governments because as long as uh, schools are government schools, the curriculum will be political, and someone's going to decide what your children are allowed to read and not allowed to read. Um, but obviously, the, the libertarian solution is well, it shouldn't be political, it shouldn't be government, it should be alternatives that allow parents to make those decisions for themselves. And, and wouldn't that be a healthier thing for our society if instead of having these really toxic winner takes all bitter debates um we could just let well you do it the way you want and you do it the way you want i i don't love the kind of national divorce framing that some in the libertarian movement are are using because i think that's a very actually harsh and uh and and like battle ready way of, of phrasing what this idea is and actually but if the idea is devolving to more not just local control but individual control where you know you can go you can take the money we're spending if we're spending money on public education anyway you take the money that you're going to get per pupil spending and find the educational environment that works for you and you don't get to tell someone else's family and if if they're a a liberal family and they want a more uh, a more whatever kind of experience aligns with that that's fine and if you want something else that's fine that's the way in which we're not constantly battling each other yeah and that seems so peaceful and beautiful and healthy for our society. It seems so obvious, and I, I don't think we have to get divorced in order no, to do it's that. No, fr- let's not phrase it like that. That's yeah. a nasty thing. Yeah. I, I, so much of, of libertarian uh, vernacular, it just, like, I don't want to get divorced. That sounds bad. It does it sound bad. Like a, yeah, I don't, I don't like either. a bad thing. <laughs> We're happily I, married men. We don't want to do it. <laughs> but I do want to live uh, freely, and I want to yeah. make choices for myself, and I feel like there is this this beautiful... Uh, cooperative version of libertarianism that is is the alternative to um, and and Mike Lee of all people um, who's very much a constitutional federalist um, has pointed out that that all of this hostility that we see at the top particularly fighting over the presidency and and who controls the agency so that they get to determine our speech um, if we would get back to a more decentralized model and he 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 talks very much about states' rights. I think we take it a little bit further and say, you know what? It's really about the individual, and even the state doesn't get to to tell you how to live your life, but at least then you have a little bit of uh, freedom to to move from New York City to Florida should they get so authoritarian. But I I think, and this is, I I want to ask you this here. We were talking about it before we went live. Um, this, This should be, we say this too much, but this should be the libertarian moment. And I'm seeing a lot of uh, former people from the progressive left that were so horrified by by lockdowns and vaccine mandates and and all of this this top-down authoritarianism that came out of COVID. Um, there there seems to be a new co- coalition emerging, and some some of these populist Republicans are part of that coalition. Um, Joe Rogan's probably part of that coalition. All of these former 
lefty comedians who are now realizing that that the government doesn't actually want you to think for yourself. Um, that that to me is is the new libertarian coalition, and it's going to be messy. It's going to be sloppy because we're going to have all sorts of things we disagree on, but. We're looking for decentralized local solutions. We're looking always for free speech in the public square. Um, we're, we're looking for bod bodily autonomy and all these things. Like these are libertarian principles, and we could build a coalition around that. But we probably just need to stop fighting with each other so much. Absolutely, I, I think opposition to COVID mandates and COVID restrictions. Uh, I, I hope there aren't any. Left, any of them left to fight, but of course we know there will be, uh, should be a significant part of the ongoing libertarian project. Um, these, these were very, very serious restrictions on our rights, just literal restrictions. And also the ideology behind them was so anathema to the libertarian project, was so, uh, well, just listen to experts. Experts know they're better. We got to listen. We got to trust the people in charge. That was, that was really what we were told that you were, you know, you hate it. You were anti-science. It's a version of the, you're not, you're a, you're not a patriot. You're not a patriot. You're unpatriotic. If you don't support this war effort. Um, there, actually there are just so many parallels between, you know, TSA style security. I worry we were going to wear, we we're going to be required to wear masks for the rest of our lives on planes because, and people would say, well, why do you No, it's going to go away. I'm like, well, I still have to take my belt off. Oh, hello. Hello, kitty. <laughs> I that would was, say that was very graceful, buddy. I, I still have to take my belt off to get on a plane, yeah. and that doesn't make any sense. There's actually there you can't even find an expert who thinks that that makes us any safer whatsoever. But we still do it because the state is sticky; things stick around. So uh, I, I think yes, uniting people who are frustrated with he's, uh, he's photobombing your with shot. the lockdowns. What hey do there. you think, buddy? Um, you know we have a great debate. In uh, Reason Magazine this month. Yeah, we should just talk about what's this. more libertarian, dogs or cats. Yeah, and I don't know. I'm, I'm not sure which the, which side your cat is making right well, now. Well, my um, so he is not violating the nap because this is actually his table, correct? And, and this is his studio, and he's he's letting us use it. But but we're we're very strongly in the cats or libertarian camp here. Um, and his name is Rourke. So these these are not just libertarian cats. These are hardcore objectivist cats. It's beautiful. So. Um, but, and, and the problem with dogs is that they're probably communists. They're, they're always looking for a handout and you're, you're a dog. Lover, I am so. a dog owner. I, I'm a pet lover. I didn't grow up that way. I, I came to my love of pets from having acquired my dogs. Mm -hmm. Uh, who, they're wonderful. I love them. And now I, I like cats too. Um, I'm mildly allergic, so I, I probably could never have one. Um, but I, I love them. They're great. I love my dogs. Yes, if I had to weigh in on this debate, <laughs> I think uh, the dogs are so needy. Yeah. And so um, uh, attention. W one of my dogs is named Caesar. I actually think of him as a little socialist because yeah. he just has a – your space is his space, is very much his ideology. Yeah. So. Um, but I like it because um, most people don't care about the dead Austrian economists that I love so much. <laughs> <laughs> but they so passionately care about their their pets, like they're part of their families. Yes. And um, pets in America are the ultimate luxury good that have been made available to us by the the prosperity created by markets. Sometimes I look at my dog. So my dogs are they're tiny dogs. They're they're little Yorkies. They're like eight pounds each. And I just look at you and go, thousands of years ago, like you were a wolf, and your job, you know, you were supposed to hunt and kill. And uh, and and keep humans safe. Yeah. And then you realized over you know centuries of evolution that the cuddlier you were, the more we would just take care of you <laughs> without asking much on your part. It used to be more of a mutual trade because the dogs would get you know in the, in the hunter gatherer world, right? They would get table scraps and everything, and a place by the fire, but they had to bark and make a lot of noise if if dangerous animals were coming or like a rival tribe or something. You know, they had to engage in the hunting and the killing. Now, uh, now they're pretty pampered. Now they just sit on the couch. <laughs> they took advantage of the, this. Is the, the you know Trump should run on the e unequal trades, right? This is a it's, yeah. a, it's, a, it's a it's a the trade deficit between humans and dogs. <laughs> so what? Um, let's let's try to be optimistic because you you could look at all of this surveillance and and the way that that our government seems to be um, systematically implementing all the pieces of the Chinese social credit system. You know, not starting with lockdowns, but but we've seen attempts at uh, debanking and, and all of these things that we're seeing in China. And you, you could get 
pretty pessimistic about the, about the future of, of freedom in this country. What's the what's the thing that's going to stop the government from doing this stuff to us? The First Amendment. We have something nobody else has. We have the First Amendment, baby. That's awesome. And our Supreme Court is very. Uh, very good on First Amendment issues. They, they really are, all nine of them. Uh, they, honestly, this court is more pro-free speech than probably any court that has ever come before it. They really take a, a libertarian free market, um, uh, the best ideas should prevail. They are, they are, they read this, this protection very broadly. And it's a beautiful thing. Obviously they said, you know, the horrible Westboro Baptist Church, right? They get to say vile horrific things at military service members funeral you know they that's awful but that kind of protection for free speech is so vital you have to that level of desire to to defend free speech which is what they have so and our european counterparts don't have that that's why they have privacy laws and all sorts of things that we don't have to contend with um so i i we will we will always be different because we have a protection for free speech that is unprecedented on this earth and unprecedented throughout all of human history. And, and as you pointed out, the fact that, that we're having this conversation and we have distribution and um, there are thousands of programs like this that platform libertarian values in a way that just wasn't possible when I was a kid. Like the networks were not going to talk about some of these things. Um, that, that has to be an opportunity. Like if we actually think our ideas are that powerful, um, let's, let's try to get to a marketplace. So I think I think I can be optimistic, although on a daily basis I get really pessimistic about the things I see happening. And we talk about a lot of pessimistic things because we want to be watchdogs and we want to call out government abuse and all, all those sorts of things, and we should continue to do that. But you're right that there's a very positive story to tell about the trajectory of speech online. That's what we're seeing. Okay, so since Rourke is crashing this show, <laughs> where can people find the cats versus dog debates um, in the latest edition? So that so yes, it's in the latest edition of Reason. I'm not sure when it hits stands. I think it's any day now. I got a copy of it in the office. But it's our debate issue. So the whole issue is debates. So it's a debate issue for libertarians. What issues are libertarians divided on? We had a, a, a great piece in there on um, what to do about uh, the homeless problem in D.C., for instance, you know, the tent cities and the, that kind of crime. Um, what to think about immigration. There are some other really great debates in there. But the, the, the fun one is the cats and dogs one, which you should definitely read. But we also are taking this, the issue very seriously. And your show, uh, did I mispronounce it? It's called Rising or The Rising? Uh, it's called Rising, but I, it's, either way is fine. Uh, it's uh, a YouTube show for the publication The Hill. Uh, it's, uh, we air every day, or Monday through Thursdays, and you can find it on YouTube. Just search Rising or The Hill uh, or my name, and you'll see it. And uh, finally, how do people find you? So you should watch me there. You should read me at Reason, reason.com, or follow me on Twitter, just my name. Uh, I'll be there as long as that, as long as that site is. I'm not sure how I, I, I'm, you know, I like Elon Musk and a lot of the transparency he brought to Twitter. I don't know that I'm going to pay for a blue check. You know, he's, uh, he's trying to, he's trying to strong arm us into, uh, into uh, subscribing and doing a whole sort of other things. I don't know about this, man. Did, so we'll did, did you have a blue check in the old? I regime? have a blue check now. Okay. Uh, you know, but I'm, it's the old one. Well, now, now, you know, you're going to be a peasant unless you pay for it. I, it's kind of like a, it's like a French revolution is occurring. The, uh, the landed gentry no longer have a, have a, have the right to just have a blue check naturally, which I totally understand. Um, but I, I think I would be more for it if I was clear what the benefits of subscribing are going to be. It seems like a lot of Twitter policies are now changing like on a daily basis, and that creates a lot of uncertainty, and I don't think it's a good model. Again, I'm, I'm thankful to Elon for the transparency he's brought and for releasing the Twitter files, and I, I, you know, I, I don't have like a... There, there's so much reflexive like anti-Elon sentiment everywhere, including on Twitter, but um, I also think a little bit more continuity would be helpful for the platform, frankly. Well, apparently that's his style. He idiates um, yeah. and is just like kind of throwing things out to see if it works. Yeah. But I, I agree. Massey had a tweet, I think, Thomas Massey had a tweet today where he said that um, if it's free, it means that you are the product. Yes. <laughs> and I, I sort of agree with him. And I, yeah. I, I very much um, support the idea that I would pay for a place where um, not only my voice would be unfettered, but, but of having access to things. So I don't think he's necessarily on the wrong track. And I am. I was also 
as much as it's demonized. I was a legacy blue check. <laughs> oh, there you go. And the only reason I was is that um, the organization I was with at the time, I had enough people to sort of spend the time to badger them into giving that to me. And it, it's, I think I got it in 2008 or something. Yeah, that was not a great system. But uh, I, my main issue is Twitter used to tell me um, its recommendations used to be pretty tailored to what I actually wanted recommended to me. Like yeah. I, if, tweets from my colleagues at Reason, if I missed them, I would see them. Now that system's a little bit broken, Yeah, I think. I'm yeah. not seeing – I'm seeing things like, why am I seeing this? <laughs> I, I think I – think Whatever Twitter is going to become, it's not there yet. And, yeah. And but, but that again, like um, I, I, I've always assumed that innovation is part of the solution to this, to this censorship problem. But they just have to be free from too much government coercion to get there. Absolutely, and we know a lot about the government coercion thanks to what happened. And and it is it was <laughs> beyond my wildest imagination. And I'm a pretty since I'm a libertarian, I'm capable to imagine a lot of of government. Uh, wrongdoing yeah. and uh, even even given that i was uh shocked and appalled all right well rourke wants his nap so we got to wrap this up thanks again thank you thanks for watching if you liked the conversation make sure to like the video subscribe and also ring the bell for notifications and if you want to know more about free the people go to freethepeople.org